Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. I say in my book, In the Art of Doctoring, that I owe my career to three mentors, one of whom, Eileen Dorley, was a nurse. I was particularly honored that in this 100th podcast, in this series, my guest is also a nurse. Hers is a story of determination, compassion, personal tragedy, resilience, and incredible creativity. My guest on this 100th podcast is Pam Ressler. Pam Ressler, you're very welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. You are the founder of Stress Resources, and I wanted to start there. What is Stress Resources? Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you and your audience. Stress Resources is a firm that I founded in 2001. So we're coming up on 20 years now. And really what it is, is helping individuals and organizations build tools of compassion, communication, and connection through various techniques of mindfulness, of resilience building, et cetera. It's taken many forms in the last 20 years, but I'm very proud of the work that we've done and where this seed really was planted and and how it's grown. Thank you. That sounds like a really important piece of work, largely because we are so struggling with the whole idea of resilience at this time. But before we go to talk about that, what is the story behind stress resources? How did that come about? What was your journey towards that? So it's been a very long and winding road. I I would say I've been a nurse for four decades now. And when I became a nurse, I certainly couldn't envision where I would be 40 years later for so many reasons. My journey has been one both professionally as as well as personally of really addressing healing more than curing. And I say that because I think that's often lost in our work in medicine and nursing. The fact that we're so lucky that we are living long lives, but many of us are living those long lives with underlying diseases. And so part of my work is really working with and enhancing and supporting what's still going right when there are many things going wrong. In medicine and nursing, we're often looking at the diagnosis and rarely do we know that person with the diagnosis. And we can go back 200 years in in medicine and nursing and see that that has always been an essential part. And as we have moved into more specialization, I think that often that is lost, uh, both in the provider as well as, as the patient, the expectation that everything is fixable, curable, is a false expectation. But what is always possible is healing. And so when I started back in the late 70s, I started in pediatrics and then moved very quickly into adult vascular surgery in a practice that was academically based. And one of the things that interested me at the time 
was what was coming out of uh, the early stages of mind-body medicine. And we were a vascular surgical practice. We did a lot of work with patients who had uh, vascular insufficiency. And at the time, it was very difficult to get their medications regulated without really bad quality of life issues. So if we got their perfusion good, they would stand up and faint. And so one of my missions at the time was to look into some of this newfangled mind-body meditation stuff that was coming out of Harvard. And I happened to be based in Boston. And so I really embraced this as an adjunct to the well-being of our patients and started to teach them some of these tools based on, on meditation techniques. And surprisingly, many of the patients were actually able to reduce some of their medication. And so this, this kind of surprised me. This was in the late 70s, early 80s. And then fast forward several years, I, I, I had my children and I engaged in working as a school nurse for a while. And at that point in the U.S., something was, was changing in our schools where uh, children who typically had been uh, isolated out of the mainstream classroom were coming back in. And these were kids with very complex medical issues. And so I, the role of school nurse changed dramatically. And I reinstated many of these tools that I had used with my adult patients in with kids who were living and going to school with complex medical conditions, but needed some agency of their own. They tended to be the frequent flyers who would show up in the nurse's office, not because they needed their blood glucose checked, but because they needed some tools of resilience themselves. So I began to, to integrate some of these tools in a very small way into working with uh, some of these kids with complex medical conditions who were in the public schools at the time. And then a dramatic thing happened in, in our life. My middle child was diagnosed when he was three years old with ulcerative colitis. And so we began a journey with a three-year-old with ulcerative colitis. How was he going to manage this on his own and not have mom or, and dad with him all the time and go to camp and play sports and, and do everything. And that became a new way of thinking for me of how do we, how do we know the story and how do we become more than our illness in our medical record? And very successfully, Nick was able to do that. I have uh, two daughters, one older and one younger than Nick, and um, neither of them had complex medical issues. So as a family, we just kind of learned as we went. And then tragically, when Nick was in eighth grade, his ulcerative colitis uh, became very complicated. And it ended up that he was diagnosed with an extremely rare form of cancer that can sometimes uh, happen with people who have ulcerative colitis for many, many years. But Nick was 14. And so no one could imagine that this form of cancer called cholangiocarcinoma, which is cancer of the bile ducts, could happen in a 14-year-old. We were at the best Harvard institutions. I was very well connected. And this could still happen with a child that 
had absolutely incredible pain that couldn't be managed. And I was at the bedside in a very different way than I had been before. What it taught me were many things. One, I it had been a long time since I had been a bedside nurse and the acuity and severity and the complexity of those kids who are on a regular pediatric floor. Uh, my son was treated at Massachusetts General Hospital, would have been in an ICU a few years before that. But the nurses were still caring for the same number of patients, not an ICU ratio, but a regular, uh, a regular census, which amazed me. Every single one of those, those children had on um, multiple IV lines, many um, uh, pumps, and uh, all of them had monitors. Um, and so the incredible stress that I observed of my colleagues was an eye-opener for me. The other thing, obviously, I had never been parent on the other side of the nurse's station. I was humbled. I ruminated about all of those missed opportunities that perhaps I had had, thinking I was the empathic nurse and not having a clue as to what it was really like. My son did pass away in April of 2001, but the lessons he left made me realize that I could not go back to my nursing practice in the same way that I had practiced previously. So in 2001, when he passed away, I formed my company and I said, there is a need not just for my colleague of uh, nurses and physicians to care for themselves in, in these very difficult times, but also such a need for patients and families to feel some sense of empowerment, of knowing um, that somebody knows them as a person and not as a disease. And so that became my mission. And I didn't quite know where this was going at the time, but as I was doing a lot of continuing education programs around stress management resiliency, I had a lot of private clients who were sent to me by colleagues who knew what I was doing in terms of, of resilience training, mindfulness, and they wanted their patient to get some extra training. I was not their clinician. I was not their psychotherapist, but I was their guide, their coach. And so that's how it kind of unfolded. What's surprising is a few years into it, I heard about this very unique graduate program, mid-career graduate program that was the only one in the U.S., happened to be in Boston. And what the, the program was, was around pain research education and policy taken from the social psychobio model versus a biopsychosocial model. This spoke to me because my son had incredible pain that couldn't be managed. And I couldn't understand why being at one of the best medical uh, centers in the world, this was an impossibility. He had, you know, multiple blocks and opioids. The time his pain was best managed was when he was connected with his friends and they came in droves and they came to the hospital 
we broke all kinds of rules, I must say, of how many people could come. And he played his guitar. And those were the times that he was, I wouldn't say pain-free, but he was a kid again. And they knew his story and they heard his playing. And he was not the rare cancer in bed too. But this was Nick, who was a really fabulous guitar player and fronted his own band. So I entered this program at Tufts Medical, Tufts University, with the intention of really understanding pain differently and not knowing the the morphine equivalents, but understanding how suffering affects our, our life, how we can be more in tune, both ourselves and others, with that story. I went to study with Rita Sharon at Columbia in narrative medicine because this was a brand new field at the time. And I thought understanding the stories and allowing those stories to unfold was something I had never really been taught, but I could see the importance of. I entered this program, as I said, as a a master's program at Tufts School of Medicine and went very part-time while I was working full-time with my company, as well as teaching stress management in a nursing program. And what unfolded with my capstone and thesis project was one of the largest blogging studies of patient bloggers at the time, which was in 2009, dinosaur age in social media years. Um, And it ended up being published. And what was so curious is my son found that when he could talk to his friends, and at that point, there was no social media, by connecting to the phone at the bedside and one of our laptops to AIM at the time with his friends, he wasn't his diagnosis anymore. And that was very similar to what we started to see in our study of patient bloggers and this resilience, this way of becoming part of the world again that could transpire in this new medium of of social connection and reflective process that you didn't need to write in a journal, but you could actually connect with the world. That then transitioned into a lot of the work I do with communicating the experience of chronic pain and illness. And that's where I am today. So uh, it's, as I said, long and winding road, but I am grateful and humbled that I do the work that I do and I hear the stories that I am privileged to hear. Thank you for sharing. This was an incredibly painful memory for you. And for that, I am so grateful that you were generously revisited that whole experience. The remarkable thing about that story is that you did not succumb to your grief. You saw the patient, you saw Nick, you saw yourselves as a family, you saw your your practitioner colleagues, your nurse colleagues, and how they were coping with what must have been a horrible situation of having a patient with unrelenting pain. But not only that, you went back to school and you brought all of that learning back into the environment which you are now willing to revisit and see other patients do better as patient bloggers 
and all things from there. This is very remarkable. And, you know, first of all, congratulations on that lifetime achievement. But tell us more about where this has taken you from there. Sure. And and thank you for saying that. I do share the story a lot because wonderfully, especially with pediatrics in the U.S., we are very removed from pediatric death. And that's wonderful. And in the last 50 years, we have seen a remarkable change in mortality of, of children. And because of that, there is a great deal of fear and a great deal of the invisible nature of pediatric chronic illness, pediatric pain, and pediatric death. So I I have shared my story many times in print media, in interviews, because it's something that I feel those of us in healthcare think we're so smart that we can avoid death uh, if we do the right things. And I want my young students, I teach medical students, to be humble, to be vulnerable, to know that their presence means a great deal but not everyone is going to survive. And that's not a message that is out there. And so I I feel very strongly that those of us who have experience being on both sides of the nurse's station, the bed, however we, we see ourselves, share a bit of our vulnerability and our stories, especially when it is around end of life and, and very difficult situations because that's how we can role model. Most medical students, nursing students do not see a natural death occur. They see deaths in ICUs or, you know, very difficult situations. We have medicalized our life at this point. So that goes back to your, your comment and, and thank you. I, it is difficult, but I think it's important for me to, to share that and to articulate that. Where this has taken me has uh, taken me around the world. And I think of that my daughters are adults now and that I am able to have this way of, of connecting to a larger world is very exciting for me at this time in my life. I threw a lot of my writing and I did start to write a lot as I started Stress Resources, mainly as a mechanism for letting people know about what I offer. And so I started blogging. I started being very active in the social media space. And that led me to being the only nurse on the board at Stanford Medicine X, which is a really innovative initiative of bringing together tech and healthcare and innovators, health design. And this really excited me. And so I did spend a number of years working with the phenomenal people like Dr. Larry Chu at Stanford as well as the great folks at IDEO and in design thinking. This became really exciting for me. Our environment of healing is as important as many of those other technical skills. And from there, I became very involved in ways of thinking about healthcare differently. So I serve um, in Massachusetts on a nonprofit 
about health quality. How do we make health more equitable? I was asked to serve on a presidential task force for the International Association for the Study of Pain with Global Alliance for Pain Patient Advocates. How can we help that voice? How can we co-create with patients? So I'm, I'm serving on, on that and was in Amsterdam meeting with many of my colleagues before COVID hit. And then I've also been asked to serve on the board of directors of an international organization called Childkind International, which its focus is on how do we do better with pediatric pain, which is exactly what I think we need to be doing. And how do we also help hospitals create principles of excellent pediatric care among all departments? And so that's how this has transitioned. My work has become more global and not location-based as one of the positive attributes of COVID. I don't see folks in my office very much. So that at all, actually, since last March 9th. So this has been a very interesting time where I've been teaching online. I've been consulting online and the world is, is limitless now. That's wonderful. And it is fantastic that you are able to share with the world because of the way the world has changed in the last year in particular, and probably the decade coming up to that. So where to from here, Pam? <laughs> what do you think is the, the future for you? And what do you think is the future for your work? That's a great question. I don't like to, to set too many guardrails for my work because just to give you a little, you know, <laughs> a little bit of um, history, when I started in nursing, there were no computers on the floor. So we were writing in paper charts. And so for me to even think about holding in my hand a computer that I can connect with the world is still really cool for me. And I know I must sound like I'm 110 years old. I'm not. But I, I couldn't have imagined this place. What I, I think I would say is using these wonderful tools of technology, I hope that my direction will be in more connection about how we hear and hold the stories. And so what I hope is that through the students I teach, that I give them permission in a way to hear and hold those stories. And maybe it's going to be with some high-tech devices, but that humanness of healing and of medicine and of nursing can get so far away from the story. And so I hope that through all of this connection in the high-tech media, I create more humanness, hearing and understanding and witnessing the story that is there. And everyone has a story. And to help our students not just be good diagnosticians, which they need to be, or technicians, but they also need to be really good humans. And part of that is vulnerability and 
role modeling that your own pain and suffering is going to be there when you're a good clinician, right? And it's not a sign of weakness to notice your own suffering. It's a recognition of your compassion. And what I really hope is we don't train that out of our students, but we give them ways to actually act upon that. And I don't think we do a really good job right now. And so I'm listening to the new clinicians. How do they imagine this? How can they be connected? I think we need to hopefully find ways to check in with ourselves more and remain curious. And I think I'm, I would hope that some of my work will go in those directions. What I'm doing right now is doing a daily haiku, a healing haiku, which I have people around the globe who are participating with me, a physician friend who writes one too. And so these ways that perhaps I can use that humanity, the compassion, put it out there and invite others to join me. Pam Ressler, you're remarkable. You're remarkable because you've walked the walk. You've been there in in the midst of massive tragedy. You've been there as a member of that family, but you've seen your fellow, your colleagues, your fellow nurses, doctors struggle with the idea of chronic illness, struggle with the idea of chronic pain. And what you've managed to do is bring all of that together. I love the idea of co-creating with patients. We do our best work when we recognize our own humanity. And for that, we salute you. And for that, we thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much. And keep doing the work you're doing. I I like to tell my students and, and my colleagues, you know, keep your heart soft, but keep your eyes open. And we can do this work so beautifully together. Thank you. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.